Welcome to the Defend the North podcast. I'm your co-host, Dana Eisfeld. I'm joined today by a friend, a neighbor, and a Wisconsin sports homeboy, Tyler Saxey. Tyler's the kind of guy that you can sit next to for two hours at a bonfire and talk nothing but sports, although I guarantee you he's going to talk about how Wisconsin is superior to Minnesota. He's also the kind of guy that proudly waves his red and white Wisconsin Badgers flag in his yard all fall along as I drive by. I've seen you wear every iteration of red clothing, Tyler. Shirts, polos, sweaters, shorts. I'm not sure what to do with myself at this point, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you much, Dana. My pleasure to be on. So, Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself other than your um, infatuation with all things Badger. Sure. Um, so that started at a young age. So going back to the infatuation, all things Badger, um, grew up like uh, 45 minutes from Madison. So it all started there. Um, so Wisconsin native, went to UW for undergraduate studies and then returned for my MBA. So I'm a double Badger from the academic side. Um, so um, career in marketing and brand management brought me up to the Twin Cities in 2012. Um, so I've been Always repping Bucky, uh, another Wisconsin team since I got up here then. Almost, yeah, almost a decade now. Um, not bad, but actually hoping finally, if we can get through some of this pandemic stuff, hoping for a big tailgate the Friday before, Friday after Thanksgiving this year. So Badger Gopher matchup is up here in the Twin Cities on that Saturday. So I'm hoping everybody's kind of tired of Thanksgiving leftovers by Friday night and we'll, uh, we'll grill out as long as there's not a blizzard. Well, we, we got to be fair, Tyler, like as much of a Wisconsin sports fanboy as you are, like you've adopted a couple of teams here, have you not? That I would say that's fair. Um, I think my vitriol would be saved for the Gophers and the Vikings, um, but, um, you know, no MLS and no NHL in Wisconsin, so all on board with the Loons, all on board with the Wild, um, and, you know, Twins Brewers, couple of games a year. That's all right. Same with the Bucks and Wolves. Um, like to see them both do well. Winters are long. They're they're helped by having good basketball to go watch. So hoping the Wolves can uh, put something together here. Yeah, we're all kind of hoping that, as we have been for the last thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get into that later because you know Milwaukee and, and Wisconsin at large waited fifty years for a return title. So you've got something to teach us about patience, Tyler. But we wanted to start tonight about, you know, there's a lot in common between Minnesota and Wisconsin. And we do compare almost everything, the size of our state, the population of our state, politics, you know, whether we lean left or we lean right or the number of lakes that we have and inevitably our sports teams. So Tyler, we sat at a, at a bonfire at your house, um, just over a week and a half ago, and and we talked about the Mount Rushmore of this and the Mount Rushmore of that, meaning the best four of, of so many things sports-related, right? In your experience as a Wisconsin sports fan, what are the best four moments that you can recall, or even if you weren't alive, that you can relate to as somebody that cheered for, for teams throughout the state? Great question. Always fun to do a Mount Rushmore of sports think the most of them will be from my lifetime. I've got one, I would say, of the four that um, predates me. Start with the Packers, um, and the, despite the fact I'm much more of a Rodgers guy than a Favre guy, um, with the Packers, I've got to go back to Super Bowl 31 and the 1996 team. 
you know, hadn't even been in one since Super Bowl II. Um, the idea of Title Town was becoming a relic and something people born in 1980 or after, like me, had no idea um, really what that was all about necessarily. It was like, you know, these Packers aren't very good, and why do they play half of their home games at County Stadium? That makes no sense. Um, all of that stuff. But then it started to come together in the 90s and then um, paid off with that team of the Reggie White signing, um, paying immediate dividends. Um, and that was just a really fun team to watch. I think they're still the only team in the salary cap era that led the league in scoring and scoring defense. Um, they actually scored more than double what they allowed that season. And then the Super Bowl itself was just a actually great game to watch um, and a highly entertaining Super Bowl, a decade full of mostly blowout Super Bowls. And we got 24 combined points in the first quarter uh, between the Packers and Patriots. And then you had 81-yard touchdown pass to Freeman. You had a 99-yard kickoff return for a touchdown, so you had big plays. And then even Desmond Howard winning the MVP as a special teams player um, based on kickoff and punt returns was uh, kind of a unique game. Um, And just a payoff of a really good season and a really fun team to watch and actually get get Titletown back there again. All right, so the Packers win a Super Super Bowl in the mid-'90s, Tyler. There was also another Wisconsin team that in the 90s kind of rose to national prominence, and that was the Wisconsin Badgers. So what was your first sweet taste of the roses out in Pasadena? Yeah, so the 1993 Badgers, who so New Year's Day 1994, uh, that Rose Bowl, that's sort of the start of all of it, I would say. Um, it was you know surreal as a 13-year-old who for some reason had been following the Badgers since I was a much younger kid, despite the fact they were awful. Um, but that was a, a real magical season in 93. And then just, you know, like I said, surreal to watch, um, tune into the Rose Bowl on ABC and Keith Jackson announcing and actually have the Badgers in that game. Um, then they went ahead and won it um, 21-16 over UCLA. Um, and that was... You know, that was a big one. It's a really good game, really close. Um, and I think that's still the one that a lot of Badger fans point back to. They've got they've got their memories of that game specifically, even though we had the back-to-back Rose Bowl wins for the 98-99 seasons you know, later after that um, and, and really kind of rose to more consistent prominence at that point. And thereafter, um, it was the, the, the unexpected one um, for, for 1994 Rose Bowl. Didn't expect to be there. Um, then actually pulling it off and winning it that kind of put us back on the map and, and really set the stage for several decades now of, of excellence in, in football and basketball um, in the golden age of University of Wisconsin sports that um, never would have imagined prior to that. Um, so it really kind of kicked things off for us, even though it was a few more years or a handful of years before um, football and basketball really took off. Yeah, I would argue your your earlier point about back on the map. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but it, it did put you on the map. And, you know, that that's yeah. it. Like Wisconsin had their moment, their, their big moment. And that's the moment that the Gophers are still waiting for. Um, the Like you're right. Like that spurred what's become now almost three decades of what I would say is three, you know, sustained excellence for Wisconsin Badgers football. Um, what you didn't have though, Tyler was sustained excellence from your NBA basketball team. Yet in 2021, the Bucks took the title. So talk to me a little bit about what that meant for Milwaukee and for um, Wisconsin basketball fans after 50 years of waiting. Yeah, that, uh, that felt really good. Um, And definitely a long wait. 
Um, and I think for um, you know, talking about the Mount Rushmore of things, it, it might seem like a little bit of recency bias to, to put the books, the Bucks 2021 title on there, but um, just the way it happened was extremely fulfilling. Uh, you know, between the wait um, of it being 50 years since the last championship, um, the first championship for Milwaukee um, in my lifetime was fantastic, and just watching it, you know, hoping it was going to happen and then actually watching it, it turned out to be something that was like even better than you would have thought. Um, I think just from the way it happened um, of, of Giannis putting in, you know, one of the all time finals performances in general, uh, but then really coming up with a, a legendary closeout game performance, you know, 50 points, 17 rebounds, I think it was five block shots um, to, to rise to the occasion in the moment, um, the way that he and the rest of the team did um, and, and make it happen and win the title on home court. Court, um, with the Deer District going crazy, um, pretty pretty cool thing uh, for Milwaukee sports and for Wisconsin sports in general um, to see it to see it come to fruition after a few years of like they're close, are they ever going to get there? Um, and then and then doing it now kind of takes the pressure off, I think, for for Giannis and and the rest of the team to really kind of free up and go go after a few more. But having one now at the age of twenty six for him, I'm um, really kind of cements his legacy already. Okay, well, you got one more Mount Rushmore head. Um, what is it, Tyler? I'm going back in time with this one. Uh, we're going to go actually to the Ice Bowl in 1967. It's such a part of Wisconsin sports lore and Packers lore specifically, um, and the connection that um, fans have to that game and the weather being so cold. Bart, Snars, Bart Starr, excuse me, sneaking it in to win. Um, that was... You know, that was a big one. So everything with it from the weather to you had Lombardi versus Landry on the sidelines for a coaching matchup um, and just how big of a piece of the history um, and the storytelling um, of the Packers that that actually is. Um, and of course, the, the Super Bowl was still to come um, with that. But, you know, until the next year when the Jets knocked off the Colts um, with the upset there and the Super Bowl was kind of more of a foregone conclusion. Um, so that one is the throwback entry onto Mount Rushmore. I've appreciated you um, recapping four things that Minnesota sports fans have never been able to enjoy. And a Super Bowl, <laughs> a Rose Bowl. Well, that that's not true. I, I should say, you know, fans of my generation, a Rose Bowl victory, an NBA championship and an NFL championship. Although, you know, none of us got to experience that as those were, you know, back in the 60s. But we're glad that you're happy about where things are and where things have progressed as a, as a Wisconsin sports fan. And today, you know, we kind of wanted to take that sentiment, Tyler, and to tie it back to sort of our outline. Like, as we talked about earlier on, you know, we're often comparing Minnesota and, and, and Wisconsin. And so, because there's a lot to unpack when you're talking about, you know, what the Wisconsin sports teams have done and what the equivalent Minnesota sports teams have done. And then like, you know, where one team has done better or worse, like kind of on, um, you know, comparing those two things and determining like, what can we learn from one another? Um, which is not something that we're accustomed to because it's usually just, can we beat you? And if we lose, we hate you. And that's about it. But I think um, that, you know, as we start to look at today, we're going to be focusing on the the Milwaukee Bucks and, and, the, and the Timberwolves. I think those are both franchises that have had long periods of, of not succeeding um, but, you know, and then some periods where they've done well, as we do that, we're looking at the, the, the bucks and the wolves. And, and, and we talked a little bit about 
the way that the Bucks won the 2021 NBA championship. So you beat the Heat kind of in that revenge matchup in round one. You knocked off the Nets, although barely, you know, like six inches of Kevin Durant's toe could could have knocked you out. You know, the upstart Hawks with, um, you know, all their young guns, you took them out. And then the Suns, who won the first two games in the finals, and you guys ended up winning four straight to take the title. Um, I just... You know, I I, I got to say, like, I'm a little jealous. And the emergence of Giannis as an all-time great in Milwaukee and the fact that he re-signed last year for the max, the six-year deal over, what, $235 million. What did that mean to you last summer when Giannis decided to re-sign, when everybody thought there was a good chance he might leave? Yeah, that was absolutely huge. Um, I think... It was both exciting and a huge sigh of relief, I think, for Bucks fans. It seemed to be the case that he talked a lot about really liking Milwaukee um, and being the team that took a chance on him and drafted him at a really young age and, and made it sound like he wanted to stay. Um, but then when you had a couple of close calls where they're the number one seed um, two years in a row and then don't get it done in the playoffs, um, and you start to wonder, you know, is he going to go the route others have gone and, and try to join a super team somewhere or go to one of the coasts, um, things like that. So the fact that he, they were able to make you know, the right moves to entice him to stay. I think um, the Drew Holiday trade was big, obviously, for winning a title, uh, but it was also big, I think, for convincing Giannis that the team was committed to, to doing the, the next things and not staying put and really going after that title. Um, so once he signed um, and agreed to that max extension, that was that was critical. Um, and then um, then it was just a matter of let's let's hopefully we can pay this off sooner rather than later, so it doesn't become a, a thing where does he get disgruntled over time if they if they can't pull it off? That was that was obviously the big thing uh, before the season. Probably more of a sigh of relief, I think, than excitement. Well, let's talk a little bit about that 2020 off season for the Bucks because if you ask me, it was it was kind of a hot mess. I mean, it, it all ended up working out, but before you guys signed Holiday, like what happened with Bogdan Bogdanovich? who everybody thought was going to Milwaukee and ended up being, by the way, like a pretty key factor before he got injured in in the Hawks playoff run this year. He was, I think that you're definitely right. I think it was a roller coaster of an off season. Um, because that one, um, there was a lot of excitement, I think in the fan base, including myself when they were going to get Bogdan, you know, that seemed like a really good signing and this type of scoring punch that I think they needed uh, on the perimeter. That, that could have been really helpful for them. So it was a real big disappointment when that fell through. Um, but then you know, more than made up for that with the, with the holiday trade um, is that was, you know, that was a key step up of, of getting a two-way point guard. Um, Eric Bledsoe was a, a great guy and a really solid defensive player. A lot of uh, struggles on the offensive end at times. Um, so getting somebody who's a true lockdown defender in Holiday, plus the ability um, to contribute on the offensive end and be sort of the big three on that side of the floor, um, along with Middleton and Giannis. That seemed at the time like maybe this is the move that gets us there. But you're right, it was a roller coaster there for a bit of, before that had happened, it was like, eh, what, what actually just happened here? It looks like we lost a lot of depth and didn't add anything <laughs> until they got Holiday. Well, you guys lost Bogdanovich because, you know, it sounds like, you know, what the league basically said is that there was tampering 
and the trade was nullified. And, you know, there's tampering probably in every single trade in the NBA. In fact, I think there's two trades now that are under um, scrutiny by the NBA. But yeah, looking into the Lowry one, I know. And you guys end up getting Holiday, though, which, you know, at the time, I think the national consensus was like, as you're saying, perhaps, perhaps like they've been in the playoffs two years in a row. I mean, several years in a row. They've been the number one seed. And, you know, you put up the Giannis wall. And Chris Middleton's a little inconsistent and Budenholzer doesn't know how to coach and, you know, you can knock him out, but holiday then comes in. And so there was no question about his ability to lock down defenders on the perimeter. And we saw that as it transpired into the NBA finals, like the way that he took the head off the snake by, you know, taking, you know, when he was on Paul, he shut him down. When he was on Booker, he slowed him down. Yeah. But, you know, throughout the playoffs, Tyler, there was a lot of national dialogue about whether or not Drew Holiday was a guy that really could be part of a big three offensively. And yet you can make the case that he did enough offensively that it pushed him over the top. So as a fan watching them closely throughout the playoffs, what did you feel about his performance on the offensive end? He did have some ice cold nights in both the finals and the Eastern Conference finals. Um, there were some nights where he was – you know, he was putting up 21 shots and three quarters and hitting four of them. And it's like, yikes. Um, I, I felt also, though, that I think there's still some positivity for next year. I think they're still trying to figure out exactly how to run that offense with with Holiday's strengths. Um, you know, Spot-up shooting and catch-and-shoot isn't necessarily his strength. And I think they got into a little bit of that um, with having Giannis almost do too much ball handling. It's hard to say. I mean, given that the results usually end up well when he's, when he's got the ball in his hands and making something happen. But I think when, when they allowed Drew to bring the ball up um, and kind of command the offense and then find Giannis in the right spot or allow him to attack because of the attention on Giannis um, and let him get to the rim. Um, he was a lot more effective offensively. Um, so I, that was a takeaway for me was, you know, I think they're still trying to figure out how to use him offensively in combination with Giannis and with Middleton and how does he get his shots. You know, I think going forward, I think there's an opportunity to be less reliant on having to watch Giannis dribble the ball up the court over and over and instead let him get to a spot um, high post on the wing um, where you can get him the ball and let him go to work or let Middleton or excuse me, let um, Drew attack a little bit more and get to the rim. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if it took Budenholzer an entire year to figure out how to use Holiday. Yeah, he's uh, not sure how that fits into play random guys, which you hear in the timeouts like, OK, <laughs> But, you know, I, you got you got to give the guy credit, though, because in that net series, you, you talk about those ice cold nights, Tyler. And there were a few times when, like, I'm like, is this guy going to show up at all? Now, granted, he was still bringing it on defense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the national um, announcers, unless it's like the highest stage and he's making like these out of the world plays like he did in the NBA finals, they're not going to focus on that. But, you know, there was that game against the, the, the Nets where. He missed shots for the entire first three and a half quarters. And then like the last five minutes of the fourth quarter, I think it was game five. He had like four shots and had like 11 points in like three minutes or something. And, and then, you know, games five and six, he hit some pretty big buckets too. Um, but I still think the iconic moments of Drew Holiday in, in the 2021 playoffs, you know, were against the Suns and, you know, that steal and alley-oop. That's going to be a play that goes down. And you talk about, you know, the ice bowl in Wisconsin mm -hmm. lore. People are never going to forget that. If if Drew Holiday never has another moment for the Bucks, 
people will still talk about that in bars from lacrosse to eau claire to madison you know to green bay to milwaukee for decades to come yeah he i mean he literally stole game five in phoenix um with that play um that was you know and that would have been that would have been a major letdown because the bucks played so well for that game um and for you know for 45 minutes they had been really solid and then it started to slip away and the big lead went away and it's you know the lead's down to one if booker gets a shot off there you're probably down one um and to to make that play at that time and get a clean rip and head the other way and make that pass and that was that was an iconic one i i still kind of can't believe he made that pass i know that i heard in the post game press conference that Giannis said you know throw it to me pass it to me or whatever it was but for, there was less than like what 20 seconds left yeah and you know it, the smart play by a point guard would have been like to turn around dribble it out get fouled yes right? but Giannis said something to him and he threw it up and you know that's that's the kind of play that you know as a minnesota sports fan on the uh on the other side of the border tyler like if i had ever got i, I would never forget that if that were my team yes i have um i've watched it probably half a dozen times for sure Wait, that's it? Six no. times? <laughs> Come on. More if I that. if I talk to your wife, I bet she would tell me he's watched it at least six dozen times. <laughs> that's probably fair. So I I rewatched like you know the fourth quarters of uh three of the finals games in the last two games preparing for this podcast because I knew I was coming on with a Wisconsinite. And the guy that really stood out to me, okay, so Giannis like making the leap from like an MVP caliber player to a legendary all-time NBA performance in the playoffs. Like it, it, it didn't surprise me, but you know, a little bit, it made me feel like he has done everything I thought he could. And I think there could be quite a bit left more in the tank, but in what rewatching those games, Chris Middleton and the shot making particularly at the end of the fourth quarters was what really stood out to me. So as a Bucks fan, what did you see in Middleton in the 2021 playoffs? And um, how did that compare to what you've seen him as he's played the last eight seasons in Milwaukee? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, there's definitely, you know, he's always been kind of the quiet guy and like the silent assassin. I felt he hasn't gotten enough credit for the player that he is, um, especially the last several years. Um, there's, there's been a lot of up and downs. He's not he's not always the most consistent guy. Definitely gets big buckets and going to him in, in the in the clutch, like you said. Um, you know, and part of that is you know, part of that is actually driven by Giannis's struggles from the free throw line. Um, you know, you get late in games. It starts to be a liability to have the ball in his hands because other teams are just going to foul and put him on the free throw line if you're in a close game. Um, so you get down to the final two, three minutes of of, of tight games. Kind of had to go to somebody else a little bit, as crazy as that sounds. But the free throws were such a liability at, during stretches um, that Middleton had to become the de facto go-to down the stretch, and it just seemed like he really started to embrace that as the playoffs went on, um, stepping up with some really big second halves, some really big fourth quarters, and then really late taking big time shots. Um, he hit a huge jumper when Phoenix was getting close again in Game Six to kind of ice that one as well. So it just seemed like the I think the confidence he played with in the regular season in the past, it, it seemed to go to another level in the in the playoffs and just kind of embracing that role of the fact that the team was trusting him in that role um, and, and giving him the ball and, and, and saying you need to get it done um, seemed to really elevate um, 
which was nice to see because I know in the past playoffs, like his up and down nature and inconsistency has been part of the problem, um, especially in the Toronto series when they lost in the conference finals a couple of years ago to them. Um, so it just seemed like a seemed like a different level of confidence that he had um, as the playoffs went on. It just seemed to increase. Yeah, and I think you know you mentioned in, in the in the opening segment of the podcast, Tyler, about the gratifying way with which the Bucks got you know their ring, and the 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 struggles that they've had, and getting knocked out of the playoffs earlier than most you know fans would say they should have, and you know you kind of think back to the the eighties and nineties with the the Pistons getting knocked out by the Celtics and the Bulls getting knocked out by the Celtics and the Pistons, and but yet both of those teams kind of coming through the the other end and staying together and keeping their cores together and not building super teams and maybe making a, a, a smart free agent signing, but developing, continuing to develop Giannis, continuing to develop Middleton. Because Middleton, you know, you're, you have the second round guy drafted 39th overall by the Pistons. You guys make a smart ass trade in that 2013 offseason, yeah, getting rid of Brandon Jennings and bringing on Chris Middleton. At the time, though, it seemed like, an, you know, but what Chris has become and your patience with him. And, you know, he's making 35, 37 and 40 million dollars the next three seasons. So clearly the Milwaukee front office, like they believed in what this guy could do, even if prior to this postseason, they hadn't seen it. And I really appreciate that. Like, you know, between the Giannis Supermax and Giannis deciding Milwaukee's my spot and Chris is my Robin, right? Mm -hmm. And then make make that savvy trade in the offseason with Holiday. And it kind of all comes together. And granted, like, you know, some of the, um, you know, the fortunes of the playoffs have to, you know, turn in your favor in order for you to get through four rounds and win the championship, right? And that happened. Absolutely. But we talked about this, you know, uh, when we in our one of our last conversations, the Bucks met the moment. And, you know, you you alluded to the idea of maybe Milwaukee having a little bit of a run here. So as the Nets continue to add pieces to their roster and will probably be more healthy than they were last year. You know, the heat with Lowry, if the NBA doesn't undo that trade, look to be more competitive. Um, you know. It's been a quiet off season in Milwaukee, and I know Milwaukee fans on Twitter are a little upset about that. So, how do you feel about what's happened in the off season and the ability for Milwaukee in the mid market with this core to sustain this run? Yeah, that's been kind of interesting to see the reaction to the to the off season for the Bucks. I mean, I I don't know what people's expectations were. Um, if you look at it, I mean, with having the core locked up that you do um, with the big three and the money that's going to them, you're basically automatically going to be in luxury tax territory already. Um, so the Bucks are really in a place where you're exchanging pieces um, in those role player roles where you're going to have to replace some young guys occasionally, and then you're going to have to replace um, some some vets when it, willing to take the minimum vet contract um, and, and kind of trade some of those out. So I'll start there. And like I'm pretty pleased, actually, with the free agency period in the offseason. Um, I think would it have been great to re-sign Tucker and bring him back? Sure. Um, at the same time, I think he was a great move during the middle of the season um, to bring him in this last year. He provided some toughness. He provided some key defense um, and some things for us. But you know, he's going to be 36, I believe, next year coming up on that. So to give him 15 million for two more years, 
I don't feel a lot of angst about Tucker getting away, um, especially with balancing that with the fact you were able to get Bobby Portis back at a major discount. I mean, he took less than half of what he could have gotten elsewhere out on the free market if he didn't want to come back to Milwaukee. So getting Portis back was huge. I think they've actually made an upgrade at backup point guard by replacing Jeff Teague with Hill, um, with George Hill. Um, I think that's a, a little more stabilizing presence for the second teamers to come in for a few minutes at a time. I like that move a lot. And then I think really interesting that they kind of wrap things up by the trade to get Grayson Allen. I think that's, you know, as they wait for DiVincenzo to get back from injury and not sure exactly when that's going to be, if it's going to be early in the season or if they have to wait a little while um, before they have him back fully. That's kind of a nice pickup and piece there. They didn't give up much to get it. Um, so a little bit more depth there. That's a nice piece. And I think, you know, that sets them up maybe for another in-season move next year. So if there's something you seem to be lacking as you're heading towards the stretch run, um, now all of a sudden you have DiVincenzo, you've got Connaughton, and you've got Allen all kind of filling that same role. Um, you could maybe move one of those pieces um, and maybe move Allen out again and get something else. Um, so that, that's kind of an interesting piece to me, just what they could do with that in the future beyond what he brings to the court immediately. I'm a little disappointed too and in, in like Bucks fandom having just won the championship and riding this high and then coming back and like all the things that we could have done. Look, any point guard is an upgrade above Jeff T. Like there's that guy should not have been playing two minutes in an NBA finals, let alone 10. Amen. And, and Grayson Allen, you know, is a great three point shooter. And, and, you know, um, George Hill led the league in three point shooting, I think a couple of different times. And I, I know he's getting a little, you know, long in the tooth, but he's a, he's a good ball player. And then Bobby Portis, I, I guess he wants to be a, you know, his stock, he had the opportunity to hit the free market, right? And see what was out there. And he's like, nope, I'm I'm going to lock down in Milwaukee. Two years, what was it, $9 million? Yes, two years for $9 million. And the second year is a player option. So I, I think if he puts together another season like he did last year um, in this coming season, then it might be like an opt-out and give the Bucks the chance to pay him market value. Um, so it might be a one year, but maybe it is two. We'll see. And, you know, Bobby Portis was the ultimate irrational confidence guy in the NBA finals. Like you always expect, you always wait for that player that comes off the bench that does something that you just think, okay, that moment is too big for him. And yet Bobby Portis played like he was Giannis Antetokounmpo for, you know, several stretches during, you know, late games in game five and six. And and I got to give it to that guy. Like that's the kind of why, guy that I want to suit up when it comes down to the biggest battle of the year. You know, yeah. and, and to bring him in at 4.5 a year, I mean, come yeah. on, come on, right? Yeah, that was that was a major win in the offseason. Once that happened, it was like, all right, let's get the right other kind of pieces in as role players. And the other one they had to replace was Bryn Forbes, which you're essentially replacing three-point shooting and no defense. Um, and I, I think we've got that covered with, you know, Allen being part of that, even, even getting, you know, Getting Dante back healthy is going to be a big win because they just went through the whole playoff run without him. Um, so I think that's going to be like a bonus, almost like a free agent signing next year um, whenever he gets back into the lineup healthy. Um, so I think they have that to look forward to as well. Then in terms of, you know, being able to make a run, you know, it's it's interesting. I think 
So like we've just talked about, I think the good thing is the, I don't see a fall off coming from the Bucks. You know, like the Raptors a couple of years ago. Raptors get to the title, and then, you know, Kawhi opts out. He wants out of there. He leaves. They stay relevant. They stay in the playoff contention, and they actually put together a surprisingly good season after that. But now two years later, they're you know starting from scratch with Lowry um, going away and things like that. Like, I don't see anything like that. So then the other threat is, you know, what about other teams rising up? Um, and I think you covered it well. Obviously, Brooklyn, if they're healthy, they're the major threat in the East. I think Miami has to be happy with where they are, um, and Miami is going to be a physical, tough, defensive-minded series for anybody when it comes playoff time um, with the roster that they've put together. After that, I don't, I don't really see a whole lot of threats in a seven-game series if the Bucks are healthy from that standpoint. I mean, once you get past those three, you know, you got to see where the Sixers, what do they look like if they make a Simmons trade and kind of see where they happen to land. And then the Bulls have probably gotten themselves into that conversation along with the Knicks, kind of into that 5-6 slot um, type of thing. And obviously Atlanta, too. We shouldn't forget about them. Um, if they keep improving, they're probably up there as well in that 4 or 5 slot. But you know, other than the Nets and maybe the Heat, I don't see a lot of seven-game series threats in the East um, going forward. Um, and they've got the core we talked about. And then, you know, the NBA today, it's can you get your big three and then surround them with the right pieces um, for role players. Um, and I think they're set up well that way. And then I think the other big thing that gives me confidence in it is just I think the change in ownership. And I think as we talk about the Wolves in a bit here, um, that'll be interesting as well, talking about the potential ownership change. But I think that's been a big part of it with the Bucks as well. You know, they've kind of just followed the trend in terms of pro sports ownership. You know, Herb Cole owned the team from, I think it was 1985 up until 2013, 2014, when they sold to the current owners. But, you know, that was more of the 80s style, like local guy does well, does well for himself, decides to buy a sports team, and then kind of feels obligated to put a quality product on the court. So you alluded to the Bucks being like decent for stretches of the 80s and 90s. Um, and I think that was just kind of the mode they were stuck in. Herb felt he had like hardworking fans who deserved to get their money's worth going to a game. And so he wanted to at least put a good team out there. That meant we weren't competing for titles. And we also were not doing poorly enough to get good draft picks. <laughs> so it was kind of just a, a cycle of staying in that same range of when we get into the playoffs, you lose in the first round. Now the current ownership, it's more of the, you know, it's a couple of, finance guys who are billionaires who live on the east coast and happen to own the team that's in milwaukee and view it more from that investment standpoint if you build a new arena you build the whole district around it an entertainment district um, the money keeps flowing in and the way to keep that rolling is to have a contending team so i think the ownership is now in a position too where they're they're kind of committed and paying the luxury tax and, and willing to go all in like the moves we've seen the last couple of years well, I think you're right. I think that Milwaukee has built a blueprint for a lot of the franchises across the league that, you know, look at teams like the Los Angeles Lakers, like the Boston Celtics, like the Miami Heat, um, and, you know, the Golden State Warriors. And like they say, how can we compete against that when they've got better arenas and they've got owners that want to win and they've got major markets with big television money coming in? And, you know, Milwaukee certainly has had a few, you know, 
moments where luck has broken their way, but I think they've also capitalized on those moments and made something. And, you know, at the heart of it all is a humble, hardworking, selfless, and really gregarious superstar in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Because none of this happens. Like, you can build all the stadiums in the world and you can have all the best front offices making the best decisions and, like, but at the center of it, you've got to have somebody that wants to be there, that has the capability to drive the engine forward deep into the playoffs. And you guys have got that with Giannis Antetokounmpo. And I think we had something very close to that in Kevin Garnett. And Tyler, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Minnesota Timberwolves and you know where this franchise has gone and what we could potentially do in terms of um, learning from Milwaukee and see if we might see a title someday in Minneapolis. Okay, and we're we're back from break. And after all that talk about the Milwaukee Bucks, we wanted to pivot and to draw a parallel between you know what Giannis has done for Milwaukee and that franchise, and and what Kevin Garnett you know really did here from the 1995 season until he was traded to the Boston Celtics in, um, was it 2007, I believe? So Sounds right. 12 years, Garnett donned the blue and black and green and white uniform of the Minnesota Timberwolves, and not once, Tyler, did he make it to the NBA Finals. And yet, I would argue that while maybe he's not quite the offensive player that Giannis is in terms of two-way impact, you know, he's he was one of the best players of his generation. And I I start to think about, you know, Giannis and, you know, Milwaukee stuck with Middleton and Milwaukee er, Middleton stuck with Milwaukee. And you made a savvy trade in this past offseason to bring in Drew Holiday. And, you know, enough went right in the, in, in the playoffs that you guys end up in the finals. And then once you're in the finals, anything can happen. And as we saw, like the Bucks, the Bucks um, take home the title. and. I still feel a lot of regret about like the best era in Minnesota Timberwolves history with Kevin Garnett. And we never made it past the Western conference finals. And I start thinking about, well, who was our Middleton or who could have been our Middleton? What, at least what Middleton's become the last four years where he's averaged, you know, 20 points a game. um, And then, you know, six rebounds and five assists. And he's been a two-time all-star and it's clearly Marbury. You know, like I'm not saying Marbury was that kind of guy, but Marbury had the talent to be Garnett's Robin, right? Yes. And he didn't want to be here. And then, you know, like from 1997, 1998 until 2003 and four, like the best talent that you're surrounding Garnett with are guys who weren't bad basketball players, but like Tom Gugliotta, Terrell Brandon, and Wally Zerbiak are not going to help you. Um, bring home a title. And so what did the Timberwolves front office get wrong, you know, in the years after Marbury's departure um, until we bring in Latrell Sprewell and Sam Cassell in 2000 and 2003 and four. And, you know, the answer to that question, Tyler, is this don't sign Joe Smith illegally. (laughs) I, uh, I had a hunch that might be going there. Well, it, for good reason, right? 
And I don't know how many um, people remember this. I know diehard Timberwolves fans do. And it's kind of a forgotten, like a lot of Timberwolves fans, especially the younger ones, don't know about it. And the ones my age or older kind of like tuck it under the rug. But like we tried to sign this guy to like three one-year deals for very little money, which would have allowed us to acquire his bird rights. Um, and which would have allowed us then to go over the cap to re-sign him and give him a very lucrative contact, contract. But, you know, that evidence came to light. The Timberwolves were fined $3.5 million. We forfeited four draft picks in five years. And like, there really wasn't much at that point. I think once Marbury decided to leave and we lost all those draft picks, it was really hard for the front office to build around Garnett. What as a Wisconsin fan, looking at that from the outside as a guy in high school who owned a number 21 Timberwolves Jersey, I might add what, what 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 were those years like for you as you looked to the West in Minneapolis? Yeah, that was um, you know back to the luck discussion we had about the Bucks, and certainly luck does play a factor in it. Whether it's in a game with you know Durant's toes going on the line um, in that series, or just the luck of you know getting someone like Giannis who wants to be there. So I think you know going back like when they had Marbury and KG together, that was a really exciting team to watch. And like, I thought there was a ton of potential there. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's easy to bang on Timberwolves uh, management over the decades. And for good reason, uh, the Joe Smith thing, like you talked about some t- a terrible draft history, things like that, but there's also some bad luck in there. I mean, they had done the right things to, to go with KG and Marbury um, and have those two. Um, I think you banked on that becoming the foundation for what could have been a championship level team. Um, and then, you know, it, you know Giannis is a, is a different kind of cat and he wants to stay in Milwaukee. And, you know, Stefan was a different kind of cat who wanted to go elsewhere and didn't like being in Minnesota. And that, you know, that's a, it's a bit of bad luck for them um, for, for where they were going after that. Yeah, it was, you know, you know Beyond that, then to follow that up with, like you said, losing four draft picks in five years and first rounders at that, <laughs> um, the the opportunity to build around KG uh, became a lot more difficult and a lot more limited. Um, losing those picks for for Joe Smith and and like you described it, I mean, I kind of look at it as like talk about a huge amount of risk for the rights to get Joe Smith's services cheap for a few years so that you can eventually pay Joe Smith $86 million. Like what? (laughs) Well, I mean, he never made the playoffs. I'm sorry. He never made the all-star game. And like this guy, I think he ended up playing like 16 long years in the NBA. And he was a really good college basketball talent at Maryland. You know, Joe Smith was the um, consensus, um, you know, NCAA player of the year. And yet he hadn't produced in the years leading up to the, the Timberwolves signing him illegally. And, I I can't understand either why we would have done what we did other than just like very, very, very poor decision-making. And like from the beginning, I think it was less about the the cold weather and, you know, leaving a a, a big city where he grew up to, to a relatively, you know, um, middle-sized Midwestern town. And it was, he didn't want to be in Garnett's shadow. Like he wanted to be the one a and Garnett was never going to be, even though Garnett's personality, as we saw later on when he played for the Celtics, you know, with, with Ray Allen and Paul Pierce, I mean, he was a guy I think that would have been very comfortable sharing the spotlight. And I, I talked, you know, to my cousin Isaac about this a couple of months ago, but if Marbury had been drafted first and Garnett had followed, I often wonder like if, if Marbury had kind of won the town over 
and he had become the guy. And then Garnett comes in and he's a great defender and he's a 21 and 12 guy. And he's just, you know, all the intangibles. I think Garnett was very comfortable sharing the spotlight, but because he had already won over the town and Marbury comes in, he already felt like he was one B and he just never wanted to be that. The problem is he never was a one A as we found out later on in, in what he, Phoenix and New York. And, although I guess you could argue that he had the greatest career of any NBA player in China. So. Yes. He's like the, he's like the basketball Bobby Valentin <laughs> over in, over in Japan. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. If if they had switched, you know, they're right just in terms of personality as well. I mean, KG is about winning, um, and you know, I loved KG's game from the start. Like you said, I, in high school, I actually had a had a KG Timberwolves jersey. Um, I liked the look of the jersey, and I just liked KG's game and his mentality, um, both ends of the floor. I think you're right. He would have been very comfortable just being in a situation that allowed him to win. You didn't have to be one A or one B or two, um, whatever role he was, you know, considered to be or viewed from the outside. I don't think it would have mattered um, to Garnett uh, if you put him in a position to win. So that maybe that would have made a difference because definitely different with with Stefan being more of the wanting to be the the shot volume scorer um, and be viewed as a one A that way. Very different personalities, so it may not have worked anyway in the long run. But um, would have been would have been fun to see if they could have put something together. Well, you know, if Garnett is is our like our almost equivalent of Giannis, and I I don't think that's you know a super stretch in terms of what the two way player, in terms of like the loyalty to a franchise, in terms of just wanting to win, right? We got that right. It, 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 then if if you know we we're unlucky with Marbury in terms of who he was and and drafting him to this city, and then just poor management. So you know the Drew Holiday versus the Joe Smith signings, like it's pretty clear that. Like it takes in, in a mid market, it takes all three. It takes getting extremely lucky. It takes good management and it takes, you know, just the right pieces coming together at the right time. It can be done. It's just not very common that a team outside of the major markets in the NBA, you know, um, in a sport dominated by those teams can, can win. And yet they push through. And so I think what's going to happen, Tyler, now as we're moving into the 2021, 20, to um, NBA season and beyond, like, you know, Phoenix also made the playoffs. And like, you know, historically, I think if Giannis had enough of a, um, he had enough of a national um, persona about what he had done and what he had, hadn't yet accomplished that this NBA offseason could have ultimately in historical context, I think been looked back upon as like the second COVID season, like we're out of the bubble, but a lot of wacky stuff still happened. A ton of injuries in a condensed year, you know, and those are all probably fair interpretations of what happened. But I still think the Giannis ascension trumps that. Like that's what we're going to remember here, in particular because of the way he played, right? And so, you know, I think as that narrative plays out, obviously you have to draft a megastar or get somebody, you know, be a free agency if you can, which is really hard in the mid market, you know, but a lot of these teams in the NBA is docked right now with talent. And you look at the Timberwolves who were picked 15th in the West last year and probably would have finished 15th in the West if it weren't for some serious tanking. You know, we do have a bit of a core with Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and, you know, the, the budding star, Anthony Edwards. And 
Glenn Taylor sold out to Alex Rodriguez and um, his friend Mark Laurie, who are essentially um, investors from the East Coast. You know, Alex Rodriguez is a little bit more than that, but it's, you know, and we have an old arena. So as a, as again, as a, as a um, outsider looking in with the talent that we have, with the ownership changing hands, with the arena that we're working in, what do you think needs to happen in the next two to three years for the Timberwolves to get into serious playoff contention? I think number one, um, agree, agree with you that there's a pretty intriguing core here with those three of big cat. Uh, and, and going and getting D'Lo, and, uh, and finally uh, you know, a good draft pick in Edwards. Um, give him credit for that one. Um, I, I think there's a good opportunity for that to come together. I think that's the first immediate test is, is that a core that can stick together and work together well? Um, I think, unfortunately, with the disruptions of the COVID seasons, like you talked about, um, as well as some of the injury factor last year, we haven't quite gotten to see that come together for a long enough stretch. Um, hopefully this coming season we do. But I think if, if that can be answered that, you know, they're, they're committed to, to sticking it out. Um, and with, with D'Lo and Big Cat being friends, um, maybe there's a chance that actually happens and solidify that as the core. Um, you know, that's the first step. You got to make sure you have that especially like you talked about in a mid market like this. I mean, that's what's worked for the bucks this past season. The Spurs being the other one that gives you hope, you know, not being on the coast and just putting together a, a core three for a long time that worked. That's step one. Then I think step two is the the roster in general. Um, you've got to get some more of the quality role players in place. I think you've got a big three that can probably get you into fringe playoff contention, seven, eight seed, maybe jump into a six, and they should be good enough to hopefully do that. Um, but I. I think the ceiling's still pretty low until the rest of the roster gets upgraded a little bit. I don't see a lot of the impact players beyond the big three right now, the way the roster is constructed, um, that, that the Bucks and some of the other contenders in the East and West have in terms of depth. So I think that's step two for them. Um, you know, Get that core in place, and then you got to start rounding it out with the right pieces to, to become much more consistent. Well, in terms of that core, I mean, Milwaukee, all three of your best players are good defenders. And I, I'm not sure one of Minnesota's best three players is a good defender. <laughs> you know, the jury's still out on Edwards, but like we know, like, I mean, Towns, although he's showing mild improvement in his defense, that's certainly not D'Lo's strong point. Edwards, you know, year one coming into this franchise with these defensive principles in place, just, you know, he, he you know, he was lost on defense for much of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and and he's young, but and you can't expect a guy that young to get all parts of the game at once. But so I, you know, and, and you know, Giannis is in what year? What year is he in in Milwaukee? He's only twenty six, but he was drafted at nineteen, right? Yeah, even maybe year before that. So he's got to be in like eight or nine. Yeah, and Drew Holiday, although you didn't spend his time in Milwaukee, is what thirty thirty one. Middleton was drafted in two thousand twelve. So like those guys you know, are relatively on the same timeline. Um, I am a little concerned about like this core roster creation. So, I mean, the, the peripheral roster creation as you are. So you think about, so who are the guys on the wolves that have an impact beyond our, our core three. And I think Jaden McDaniels is a name that comes up over and over again, but he's going into his second year. 
you know, and he's good and he showed a lot in summer league and he had flashes last year and, you know, Jalen Noel played really well in summer league. And I guess, I don't know. Do you think Patrick Beverly puts us over the top, Tyler? No, I think, I think it's a move that made sense today um, with that, with that trade. If there was a really glare, I mean, obviously there's some needs like we're talking about throughout the roster, but if there was a glaring need, it was finding somebody at a pulse, somebody with a pulse to play back up point guard, as long as that's not named Jeff Teague. <laughs> um, that was the important thing. So I think Beverly is a is a decent get there. I think he, he plugs a obvious gap and hole in the roster. Um, and you didn't have to give up a whole lot necessarily to get him, but uh, I don't think that's a... I don't think that's a move that uh, make, moves the needle a lot in terms of wins. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't either. I also think, you know, in terms of, I do, on the whole, think that Gerson Rosas with his, you know, he did pick up Anthony Edwards and he has drafted Nas Reed and Jalen Noel and Jaden McDaniels. And so he's gotten some guys, as I've talked about in previous podcasts, that, you know, have promise and that have outperformed, I think, where they were drafted. But yet, you know, moving up, just a few years ago from number 11 to number six and giving up Dario Saric to get Jarrett Culver. And now Jarrett, oh. Jarrett Culver is moved along with um, Juancho Hernan Gomez for Patrick Beverly, who is what, 35 years old. And I mean, he's making $13 million a year, which is less than what Rubio made as our backup point guard last year. And, you know, Rubio, as everybody says, was the Edwards whisperer. It's like, okay, fine. Like, I get it. He's a rookie. Edwards needed. But Beverly, the, the one thing about him, if he's not just a chip in the potential Ben Simmons trade, um, like, he's going to come in, and we know he's going to play good defense. I know he's older. But this team, once they traded Rubio, had nobody beyond their seventh year. And the guys that were in there, the going into their seventh year, are D'Lo and Cat, who have never shown that they can lead a locker room. Beverly is going to hold guys accountable, like especially on the defensive end. And he's a guy, you know, he's played alongside Kawhi Leonard and Paul George the last couple of years. And he's been in that, you know, um, in that Clipper locker room now for four years. And I just think that, you know, bringing him in isn't going to move the needle much in terms of winning. But I think what Rosas is trying to do is put some veterans that are defensive minded and that aren't afraid to speak up. By the way, he's 33 years old. I think I might have said 35. And, you know, if nothing else, if if he remains on this roster, that's what I think we'll see from him. And, you know, Juancho mm-hmm. Hernan Gomez is like, was like stuck in, like, we don't have a true four, but yet we have four guys that are going to play the four. And he, he wasn't going to see a ton of minutes. Jarrett Culver, unfortunately, being a first round draft pick, drafted at number six, he couldn't find his way into the court. Like, let alone live up to the number six overall pick. Like, and so cut your losses, right? That was that was a tough one. And, you know, Jarrett Culver, you know, so setting aside the fact that, okay, like, guy living in suburbia who doesn't have a whole lot of things to worry about telling somebody to forgo money and stay in school, like, throw that aside. If you just think about it from the basketball perspective, Jarrett Culver was, like, the poster guy for stay in college for another year, maybe two, and take advantage of only having to play 30 games a year and work on your shot and spend the time in the weight room with a strength and conditioning coach and, and put some weight on so that when you get to the league, you're actually ready to get on the floor and do some things. I, I, when they drafted him, I was like, so you got a wing that can't shoot? Like what, <laughs> how is this going to work? So yeah, Culver from the beginning, that seemed like a, 
as you already said, kind of a dubious move of moving up to get Culver at six in the draft. Um, that that wasn't a great move, and and you're right. I think you just have to cut your losses and move on at this point with him. That makes sense. And, and you're also right from the perspective of Beverly and maybe some defensive accountability. I mean, defense has been an issue for the Wolves for as long as we can remember. Um, I mean, in recent years, I've gone to games where um, – you know, the Wolves put up 72 points in the first half, and then by the fourth quarter, they're behind again. It's like, it's like no commitment to it whatsoever. And you do need that these days. I mean, if you look at the finals, the Bucks and the Suns were two of the more efficient defensive teams in the league. There were some quarters in the finals that were 22-18 um, and just grinders because um, both teams were committed to playing defense and getting some stops and like you just don't see that from the wolves yet so I, I agree i would throw that in there too of like what does it take to what does it take to become a serious playoff contender and actually make some noise and win a series or two the, the core has got to be splitified they got to increase the rest of the roster and improve that and then actually have some commitment to defense involved in that which maybe is not there with the three so um you did allude to ben simmons what do you think about that is that a possibility still well, it sounds like in NBA circles like that, he was all the buzz in Las Vegas. Like, who can get him? And and at what point does his stock, like, um, reach its pinnacle? And if he demands a trade, you know, then you need to, as we've learned from Jimmy Butler, like, you need to move off of him pretty quickly. He hasn't gotten there yet. And Daryl Morey, right? He seems, what I've heard, what he's done is like, he's basically calling up every single team and saying that he knows is interested in Simmons and saying, like, what's your best offer? And from everything that I've heard, he's waiting for either Damian Lillard in Portland or Bradley Bill in, in Washington to demand a trade. Because at that point, their stock falls and then Simmons becomes somebody that you can trade for them. That hasn't happened yet, though. And both those guys, by the way, are guys that have been tremendously loyalty to their loyal to their franchises. In Washington, in Beal's case, Washington hasn't done a thing, and yet you haven't heard a peep from him, right? And in, in Lillard's case, like I, there was a little bit of um, discontent that came out this offseason, but for the most part, I mean, they've had relative success. They've qualified for the playoffs. They made a run into the Western Finals a few years back. Um, but I don't know if they're the kind of guys that are going to demand a way out. And if they don't and say September 1st rolls around and we get, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, up to the point where teams are reporting for training camp and, you know, is there's no way Philadelphia can bring Ben Simmons back. Is there hard to, hard to imagine it at this point. And so at that point, do other teams that are not, Portland and not Washington that have that kind of star to trade because Maury, if he's going to get let go of a star and Ben Simmons is the star, I know he did not shoot well in the playoffs, Well, he's never shot well, but he didn't shoot at all in the playoffs this year. Like, I guess he had like seven, what was it? Like two shots in seven, fourth quarters or something. Um, but like Ben Simmons is still an all-star and he's still a, a first team, all NBA defender. And he's a guy that can handle the ball and in the right offense. I still think he's a guy that can be impactful on that end of the floor. And I know that our recency bias puts his stock has dropped, but you know, I, do I think the Timberwolves, if one of these stars aren't traded for him and he wants out of Philadelphia, or Philadelphia is still of the mindset we're going to get rid of him. Yeah. I think, you know, then you're talking, is it, is it one of our three core pieces? That's the question. Like, can you trade a, a Beverly and a Jaden McDaniels, some draft picks? Is that enough? You know, um, and, you know, people in Minnesota might say that's that's too much already. But if you can keep 
the core together, you know, Ant and D'Lo and Cat, and add Ben Simmons to that. Then I think you've got a chance to add some other pieces if you're smart in your management. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. That that sort of would become the existential question for the franchise in general at that point is if you could if if you can't get him without getting rid of one of the big three, then are you you know. We haven't seen yet what it can be. Are we already going to give up on that and, and kind of change direction and go a little bit more defensive-minded with Simmons? Well, there's a big part of Timberwolves Nation that thinks that we need to move off of Cat, like in even D'Lo, and like build around Ant already. And I think we need to see this year play out. This is going to be a pivotal year because this team, although I don't think we need to make the top seven or eight even, I think if we're you know contending for one of those play-in games, that'll be enough for compared to what we've done the last, you know, however number since Jimmy Butler left, like it'll be enough to give us hope that we can do better the following year. But I've heard people say that, nope. I mean, I think we're ready to let go of Beasley. You know, he's a 20 point game guy and he's a great from three point range, but his off the court problems and his injuries, I think Timberwolves nation, we're not locked into him, but people are saying, don't let go of Jaden McDaniels for a guy like Ben Simmons. Like, why would you want to bring in a guy with his contract who can't shoot? And again, I just think like of all the things Ben Simmons can't do, and I don't think about, I do think about the things that he can't do, but those things really present themselves in second and third round playoff series. I would love to be in a position where the Timbers are, Timberwolves are talking about what their core guys can't do in a second round playoff series. Like put me there any day of the week. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point as well with Simmons, I think if he's in a different, a different lineup makeup than he's in in Philly the issues aren't quite so glaring. Um, like they need him to make shots from the perimeter in Philly along with Embiid and, and the way the rest of that lineup is constructed. If you could put him with some other scorers and some, a few other guys who could shoot um, and let him be, you know, involved in the offense in other ways, I think he could be quite, quite useful and not such a liability. If, if you're waiting for him to start knocking down perimeter shots, that's going to be painful. But if you can, put some scores around him, which, you know, we might have now with, with Edwards um, emerging there. And um, if you're able to keep big cat and his ability to shoot from anywhere might be a better fit. And then you got Finch at the helm who, you know, like from, for all intents and purposes, what we've seen of him is a really good offensive coach. So figuring out and, and he raises your floor defensively. Like we still wouldn't have our rim stopper, but if you've got a guy that's six ten playing the perimeter he's going to stop number one he's going to disrupt a lot of pick and rolls and he's going to stop um you know interior um drives from these you know point guards and like you you put a guy that can move quickly bilaterally against the timberwolves and you can pretty much guarantee he's going to score 20 points because we have no rim stopper and nobody on defense that can stop him at the top of the key at least ben simmons would slow things down at the front of the offense which would put teams in a position where they're going to have to make more and more shots towards the end of the shot clock which the timberwolves have not been good at and i just think that the floor that he raises on defense is worth trading off a couple of or at least one offensive piece and maybe a young two-way guy. Like, I would rather have a guy, and again, people say, well, he can't shoot, but your point earlier was like, well, put shooters around him and put playmakers around him and see what you got. The lane is clogged in Philadelphia, and there's not much shooting around him anymore, right? Okay, well, you know, I we were going to talk about the the Badgers and the Gophers today, Tyler, as part of this pod, but I think, you know, we've we've really unpacked the what happened with the Bucks this year. And, you know, where the Timberwolves have been 
in our franchise's past and where we are now and what could happen. I think we can just close out with this. Ownership. So you talked about ownership in Milwaukee. What difference did that make in terms of where that franchise was in the years, um, you know, up until 2013-14? Yeah, I think that was a big, big change, obviously. Um, you know, I think, you again, commented this a little bit earlier, but, you know, Herb Cole was, you know, a very generous guy, um, you know, footed a lot of the bill for, for University of Wisconsin's arena tried to put a lot of um, quality product on the floor with the Bucks. Um, never, never really got over the hump there um, with that. And, you know, he didn't have the, didn't have the financial means either that owners have. I mean, we, we're not talking Steve Ballmer money, but you've got multiple billionaires now owning the Bucks. Um, and I think, you know, viewing that as the, the combination of, you know, instead of just owning a sports team and wanting to give people good value for their money that are coming out to see games, I think now you've got an ownership group that sees a good basketball team as just part uh, of a much bigger investment, if you will. They they know money. They obviously have billions for a reason. Um, and I think they can, they had a vision for this with the Bucks as a franchise. Build the new arena, build up around it, which never happened previously downtown Milwaukee with the Bradley Center. Uh, it just kind of stayed stagnant. Um, but the idea of building more of an entertainment district and having you know restaurants and other things with the arena um, and building that. And now I think you've got a group that that sees it can pay uh, sees excuse me sees that it can pay off and they are willing to make the moves as we've seen the last couple of years who knows you know long term how that goes i think that that's kind of maybe the big question that remains is they're well into the luxury tax again um they're about to head into the repeater tax where it's even higher if you've been in there for 3 or 4 years um so they're headed there um you know if they fall short the next couple of years and don't start to contend, then do you start thinking about moving pieces and cutting costs? Who knows? Um, like how committed they are to, to winning in general. Uh, but I think they see winning as, as part of a bigger, bigger economic development play, which is, which is kind of interesting. And so seeing where things go with the wolves, having some outside owners now from outside the area and that changeover is going to be interesting to see. Yeah. I, I, I think interesting is, um, a very friendly way of putting it with <laughs> the one thing. Yeah. I mean, Alex Rodriguez, of course, doesn't have the low profile, at least among, you know, pop culture that the, that the, the bucks, albeit they're billionaires, their owners do. And so you got to, I think about like, so they, and I also wonder like they, they're doing this like gradual ownership, which what I've heard is that that's going to allow them to get the kind of money they need together. Now, Mark Laurie is a billionaire. Alex Rodriguez is his friend. Alex Rodriguez himself, I want to say with J-Lo, was worth a billion dollars. Um, without her, and I, I don't know, is he with her or without her at this point? Um, not even sure, honestly. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. Like, he's going to be the minority owner of the two, but he's going to be the face of it. Much more of the face than the Jeter, Derek Jeter is with the Miami Marlins, of course, who's basically a, a figurehead, right? Like, Alex Rodriguez is going to be very involved. I think he's, I think he's going to be the public piece of this. How that gels with Minnesota and our fan base, I'm really interested in. How how invested are they in Minneapolis-St. Paul? You know, are they as invested? And I think, you know, we're going to hear very shortly. They gave a press conference a few weeks ago 
for the first time, or maybe it was an interview. I think we're going to hear you know, six months to a year down the road, even though they're not fully taking over as owners, you're going to start to hear chatter about a new arena for sure. That's the blueprint. Like the target center for everybody that I know, um, there's just not enough lower bowl seats and there's not enough luxury boxes. And they tried to upgrade it a little bit a few years ago when the Vikings money went through for us bank stadium, they got a small cut of that. You know, they updated the concourse, they updated the atrium, but it really didn't make much of a difference in terms of generating revenue from an ownership perspective. And so like, if they want to stay in town, like, and this is what the old play with mid-market teams, you just threaten to leave somewhere and we'll pony up the money. And we didn't with the North Stars and we have every time, every time since. Right. Yeah, that, uh, there's definitely some f- a fear factor there, I think, of that, not knowing that part, like the could they be moving type of thing, which would be unfortunate. So that's that's definitely a piece of it as well, and that that bears watching. I think with the with the Bucks, you know, that was actually part of the sale, and there's been rumors about that too. That you know Taylor's been putting stuff in there, or maybe not. It's kind of been back and forth what you hear um, reported in the media about you know are they are they stuck here or can they move that type of thing um, with the bucks, a part of the sale from Herb Cole, knowing it was going to some out of state billionaires um, and investors type of thing. Herb actually put money towards the new arena himself. Um, and then that lock, that was part of locking them in, in the contract of the sale um, that they'd be committed to Milwaukee and get the new arena done. So I, I know that helped there, but, it's been kind of quiet on that front, which is a little bit disconcerting, I think, of like, what is exactly does it mean that he's trying to make sure they stay in Minnesota as he sells them? Kind of mixed messages on that. He promised language in the contract that would say, which, by the way, even if you put language in a contract, you pay $50 million and you can get out of that language. But but Taylor Taylor promised language in the contract that would keep the wolves in Minnesota. And, you know, there was the um, minority owner that, brought up the lawsuit against Taylor that ended up getting thrown out in court. But what it did is it brought those um, contracts to light and it showed that there was nothing in the contracts about keeping the Timberwolves in Minnesota. And there's no contribution by the Taylor family, at least at this point to a new arena. So like, I, I don't know. Like I, I mean, and you think about a guy like Alex Rodriguez, you know, he cheated on baseball. He's cheated on JLo. Like he's going to come out and say that they're going to build a franchise here. And, you know, I, I just, I have the underdog mentality. I have the Minnesota sports fan mentality. Like my big worry is that, you know, they move us away. The big thing we've got going for us is it sounds like the NBA wants to um, you know, start new franchises potentially in Las Vegas and Seattle, which would bring in, um, you know, all of that new franchise money in the billions of dollars. So those, right. those at least might not be immediate targets for, but I, I, I at the end of the day, if they get their arena built and I don't know where it would be, if they would put it in the same place as the target center is now, as they did with us bank stadium. And that's already pretty built up with Hennepin Avenue and first Ave right there. Um, so there's not a ton of opportunities in terms of real estate development, the way there was in Milwaukee, but yeah, I think you're right. I think like the ownership ultimate, it's no surprise that the ownership group takes over in 20, was it 13, 14, 14, I believe 2014. Right. And they pay Middleton, and they end up 2020, they pay Giannis. And now you guys, you know, your front office was able to make the trade for holiday and the rest just kind of comes together. But I think those things aren't like, those things align 
because of like, ultimately like, you know, every good franchise, it starts with what's at the top. And at the top is like, do you have a vision and are you willing to spend the money to execute that vision? And that's clearly happened in Milwaukee and congratulations, my friend, Tyler. Thank you much. It's, it was a, it was a fun run, especially coming out of, uh, you know, COVID and seeing fans back in the stands and, and things like that. And, the Deer District being excited, it was uh, it was kind of a welcome a welcome victory um, after a long period there. And you know, compared to watching the NBA playoffs in the bubble the year before, um, when the Bucks clearly did not adapt well to the bubble, um, it was a much different story this year. Well, I, I am happy for you. I'm happy for you, and I'm happy for all of Milwaukee Bucks fandom. Um, I'm I'm not going to say I'm a huge Milwaukee Bucks fan, but just to see a team like Milwaukee come through and pull it out, like gives me hope. Um, and yeah, so we're well over an hour into this podcast, Tyler. I think next time when we get together, we're going to talk a little bit about the rise of the Wisconsin Badgers and um, what's happened over here in Gopherland. Um, and until then you want to take us out tonight. Sounds good. Um, really appreciate it. Had a great time, um, uh, on this topic and really look forward to the next one. Um, Badger football, um, is definitely probably my number one thing. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting into that topic next time. All right. Well, Tyler, thanks again for coming on and everybody, uh, out there. Thanks for tuning in and, and stay safe out there. <laughs>